Blaise Pascal was born in 1623 in France. By the time Blaise Pascal was 31 years old, he had established his place as a true scientist among scientists in his generation. To give you a few examples, by the age of 10, Pascal was doing original experiments in mathematics and physical science. At the age of 19, he invented the first calculating device, the precursor to what we know as a computer. He deciphered the law of hydraulics, which states that pressure on the surface of a fluid is transmitted equally to every point in a fluid. He added important papers on the vacuum, on the weight and density of air, and the arithmetic triangle. He developed the theory of probability, which is still used today. He invented the syringe, the hydraulic lift, and he is credited with mapping out the first bus route in Paris. All of that by the age of 31. What are you doing with your life? (laughs) But one night when he was 31 years old, he made his greatest discovery It was the most important discovery of his life. And do you know what it was? Well, I will tell you what it was later on. So pay attention, and I'll tell you what it was. But first, we need to join Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. Moses and Israel have been on a journey through the wilderness, It has taken them from Egypt to Sinai, and this journey has taken them around 50 days from the time they crossed the Red Sea till now. And in that 50-day period, they have witnessed the power and the glory of the Lord in the Red Sea crossing, in bread raining down from heaven, in water flowing from a rock. In victory over an enemies, they've already engaged in warfare, and now they have come to the foot of the mountain. Along the way, they have witnessed the reorganizing of Israel under Moses, under elders, and under other leading men of their community. So they've experienced a variety of changes and a variety of challenges in this 50-day period. And they've come to the foot of Mount Sinai because they are here to worship the Lord. If you remember back when all of this started, it started because God wanted to bring his people out of Egypt so that they could worship him and celebrate a festival to him. And now he has finally brought them back to the mountain where he appeared to Moses, where he told Moses, go get my people, bring them here and worship me. And so now they have gathered to worship the Lord. The problem is no one knows how to worship God by nature. It's not something innate. We have impulses. We have desires to worship or give praise to something bigger than us, but we don't know how God wants us to worship him. So the people are gathered at the foot of the mountain and they wait for instructions to come. God is going to show them what he wants them to do in worship. The story reminds us that we don't get to worship God just in any and every way we please and call it good. The story reminds us that we worship God on his terms 
not on our terms. And this is a matter of life and death. Read the story again and you will see that God is concerned that his people might try to break out and do things their own way in their own timing. And so he's very careful to set boundaries, very careful to protect them from themselves and from himself. So true worship is not instinctive or imaginative. True worship requires inspiration from God, instructions from the Lord, and illumination from the Holy Spirit. Again, we don't get to worship the Lord on our own terms according to our own trends. What pleases you and me might not please the Lord. And our main concern is what pleases the Lord. This is what Israel is waiting to hear. And they're going to have to wait a minute as God works through his servant Moses to bring instructions back to the people. So we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And we do this not simply because this is what the Lord God desires. In other words, we're not simply trying to check boxes off and get through it and say we're done. We do this because it is also what the Lord deserves. This is what the Lord deserves. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power. Why? Well, he tells us in this story, because the Lord set us free from bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. He puts it this way in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In other words, we draw near to worship God because of who he is and what he has done for us. And when the people heard these things, they responded, they confessed and committed themselves in this way. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses took what they said back to the Lord. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the mediator between heaven and earth in this story. But I'm going to draw your attention to Moses and to the things that Moses experienced at this time. Remember that Moses is an 80-year-old man. He has an incredible story of his own. It started in his infancy where he escaped death as an infant. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace. He was nursed by his own flesh and blood, flesh and blood mother and catechized by her. He lived in two worlds and yet eventually identified himself totally with his Hebrew kinsmen. He even killed an Egyptian in order to defend and protect one of his kinsmen. And as a result of that, he fled for his life and went out into the wilderness because he was afraid of Pharaoh. He lived as a fugitive of justice for many years. He married a priest's daughter. He raised sons with her, and he shepherded flocks all around the region in which Israel is now sojourning. He encountered God in a burning bush, went back and confronted Pharaoh, and then liberated Israel as an 80-year-old man. And now he is leading the people of God from Egypt to Sinai, eventually to the promised land, showing them how they must worship and serve the Lord every inch of the way. 
So when you look at Moses' life, you say, how did he get to this point? Well, he got here by grace. God called and chose Moses out of all the people of the, of the nation of Israel for this specific ministry, for this special mission. And God has been preparing Moses through the course of his life for such a time as this. It's taken 80 years of preparation, 80 years of purification of life to get to this point. And now in this story, we see all the jagged pieces and all the colorful images of his life are coming together and taking shape and they form this beautiful mosaic. Moses has been raised up to serve as mediator between God and his people. He is the foreshadow the precursor of Jesus Christ. And in his role as mediator, Moses is going to represent God to the people and he's going to represent the people back to God. You're going to see him acting as a prophet, a priest, and a king. A king because he rules over God's people. A priest because he represents the people to God and he remembers them in prayer. A prophet because he reveals God's word to the people. And so as mediator, Moses is required to ascend and to descend over and over again. To ascend to heaven and descend back to earth. To ascend up to God and descend back to the people. Moses is the one and the only Israelite that is permitted to do this. Others might wish they could do it. Others might have that desire to do it, but only Moses is permitted to do this. He's doing this on God's terms and in God's timing. And so Moses is permitted to come up into the presence of the Lord and to to go down again to the presence of God's people. And this is why God says to the people and to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you In a thick cloud. Why? So that the people may hear when I speak to you and that they may also believe you forever. Moses is going to be God's mouthpiece, but the people need to know that God is speaking to him and through him for their sake. But it's this image of God descending in a dark cloud that stirs our imaginations, perhaps even generates a bit of fear and dread within us. What does this mean? Well, three days later, the Lord descends on Mount Sinai. And when the people go out after these three days, they look up and the mountain has changed. What they see is the mountain is on fire and wrapped in smoke. And it's on fire and wrapped in smoke because the Lord God has descended upon the mountain. And the smoke of it goes up like the smoke of a kiln or like a furnace. And the whole mountain is trembling greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet, the people tremble with fear. And yet the sound of the trumpet grows louder and louder and louder. And as the trumpet from the mountain is blasting, God speaks. Moses speaks and God answers him in thunder. Moses speaks and God answers him in thunder. And this is a terrifying experience for Moses and for Israel. They have drawn near to worship God and they have gotten far more than they ever bargained for. Far more than they could have asked or imagined. This is what happens when God draws near. 
the world begins to change. Lives begin to change. Why? Because God brings fear and dread to his people. He's generating in their hearts reverence and awe. And they stand at the, the people stand at the foot of the mountain looking up. None of them are eager to rush up into this fiery, glorious smoke. They keep their distance. They don't have to be told twice to stay away. Fear and reverence towards God has gripped them. So the Lord comes down and he calls Moses to come up. And Moses went up. Can you imagine the scene in the eye of your mind? Can you envision what it must have been like? Those of you who have traveled to places where there are mountains, and you've stood at the foot of those mountains thinking you're going to do the 14er, you're going to make that hike, and it's going to take you hours and hours to get to the top. You'd stay away if you knew a storm was brewing and that there was a risk of lightning striking you. But on a clear blue day, you want to go up. You want to enjoy that view. That's not the case with Moses and Israel. As they look up, the mountain is on fire. The people want to stay at the bottom, and yet Moses goes up. The story pulls together several threads of other stories that we have heard in this series. I'll highlight a few of them for you. Remember back when Abraham was called by God to cut animals into pieces and to have the blood run together. Abraham fell into a deep sleep and it was in that thick darkness of the night that a smoking furnace passed through those animals, walked the blood trail in the thick darkness of that night. Remember in Jacob's life as he was fleeing for his life and making his way through the wilderness. One night he had a dream, and in that dream he saw a stairway reaching from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending on that stairway. That dream came to him in the thick darkness of the night. And then there's Moses, who just a short time ago encountered God in the desert in a burning bush, and that bush spoke to him, and he heard the voice of God sending him on mission. You take all the threads of those stories and you weave them together and what do you get? You get Mount Sinai with God standing atop the mountain, with Moses ascending and descending on the stairway, back and forth between heaven and earth. You get an image of not just a small smoking furnace, but of a gigantic furnace burning on top of the mountain. What we have seen on a small scale, we now see on a large scale. And why is that? Well, because God is no longer simply revealing himself to one person at a time among his people. Now he is revealing his glory to all of his people. He wants his people to know him. The scriptures say the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What does that mean? What well, means that Moses is progressing, spiritually progressing. He is progressing from things down below to things up above. He is moving from light into darkness. He's moving from what he knows and what he can understand, what he can experience with his senses, 
to what he cannot know and what he cannot comprehend with his senses. He's moving from the known to the unknown. He's moving away from the safety and security of his own people and his own community up to the storm of God's presence. He's following the smoking furnace through the darkness, climbing Jacob's ladder in order to stand in the fire of the burning bush. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. He's moving from man to God. C.S. Lewis taught us that Aslan is not safe, but he is good. And Moses is teaching us that God is dangerous. God is dangerous. He's glorious, and yet he's gracious. God dwells in thick darkness. Now, this seems strange to us, I'm sure. It seems strange to us because we are accustomed to think God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That God dwells in unapproachable light. And in those gospel passages, we learn that there is not just no darkness, not just a little darkness. The darkness is neither thick nor thin. There's, there's no darkness at all. And yet for others, the idea that God dwells in darkness rings absolutely true. They believe God dwells in darkness because they have come to believe that God is a stormy and terrifying riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. They've come to believe that God does not only keep people away, but he destroys and demolishes anyone who tries to get near him. God doesn't want to be known. God wants to keep his secrets. God doesn't want you to come close. And they've come to feel that way because somewhere along the line in their experience, they've developed the idea that God is simply mean and angry, that he's cruel, that he wants what's worst for me, not what's best. Now, if that happens to describe any of you in even the smallest of ways, Please let me try to show you this truth from a slightly different angle. The fact that God dwells in thick darkness is good news, especially for you. Why? Well, a poet in the scriptures once prayed, Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I flee from your spirit? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. Here's why that's good news for you. It means that in your darkness, in your doubts, 
in your desperation, in your depression, in your despair, God dwells with you. He's in the thick of it with you. He's right there. And what takes away your sight and your field of vision and causes you to not see clearly is no problem or obstacle to him. Because even the darkness is light to him. So he might seem hidden from you. He might seem hidden from your sight, but you can rest assured that you are not hidden from him. You are not hidden from his sight. He is near you in the darkness of both life and death. So what is darkness to you is light to him. And it's good news for you that he dwells in thick darkness and not simply in the purity of light. But what Moses experienced on the mountain is even truer and better than that. We might ask, how can true light dwell in thick darkness? Well, keep in mind that here, darkness does not mean the absence of light. Darkness here refers to God's hiddenness, his divine secrecy. That God is mysterium tremendum. God dwells in mystery. He dwells in a place that defies our scientific explorations and explanations. He dwells in a place that defies enlightenment, rationalism, and yet he desires us to enjoy a kind of mystical experience with him. God dwells in secrecy. Not like us, not because he is ashamed of himself or he wishes to hide things from others that he's ashamed of. He dwells in secrecy because he wishes to share his secrets with those he loves, with those who draw near to him by faith, with those who truly seek after him. For those who will do the hard work of making the ascent up into the thick darkness where he dwells. Now, if that seems strange to you, think about how all relationships and all people are like this. You're like this. You don't know everything about anyone, and no one knows everything about you. The people who are closest to you are still learning things about you, still making discoveries. It's going to take a lifetime and more for you to be fully known or for you to know others. And this is a part of the beauty of relationships. The, re- the beauty of a relationship is not just getting to know others, but it's also about becoming known by others. There's a reason why we don't walk around showing everything about ourselves to just anyone and everyone. There are things that we entrust only to our wife, only to our children, only to our parents, only to our friends. There are things that we entrust only to those who are close enough to us, who have done the hard work of putting up with our nonsense, who want to know us, and those who open themselves up and make themselves vulnerable to us. This is a part of a healthy relationship. And we learn in the way God related to Moses and Israel that this is how God treats his people. 
You draw near to God, you're rewarded with more knowledge, more secrets, more of the mystery of God. You participate in the life of God in a way that you wouldn't if you just stayed at the foot of the mountain. But for those who make the ascent up into the thick darkness, God rewards them. He blesses them. He shows them his secrets. He wants, the, he wants to be known, and he wants them to be known as well. So this is a part of a healthy relationship. God invites Moses up on the mountain into the thick darkness, into the fiery storm cloud of thunder and lightning, into the presence of God, not simply to show something to him, but more deeply to share something with him. He wants to share his glory with him. He wants Moses to participate in his life with him, to share in his love, to share in his light, to share in who he is. Now, this is a challenge for us because none of us are equipped for such an experience in our physical and earthly nature. We're not quite designed for that yet, especially considering the damage that has come to us through sin, through the fall. But God continues to work on us. And as you see in Moses' life, God takes his time. He gives us room to grow up spiritually and to grow up into his heavenly nature. In other words, God begins to change us and transform us. Gregory of Nyssa put it this way in his book on the life of Moses, paraphrasing only the person who is making spiritual progress and purifying themselves, quote, advances to the contemplation of the transcendent nature of God. In other words, it don't come easy. It doesn't happen from one day to the next. It is actually something that we are called to work for, to desire, to strive to attain. This is what God has called us to. So it's only the person who is pursuing a holy life and practicing holiness that will be able to participate in God's life. As the scriptures say, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But as the Lord said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So God shares his glory with us through a filter, through a cloud and a glass dark, no, darkly, But he does that in order to spare our lives. In other words, if we saw God in an unfiltered way, without cloud, without him shrouding himself in thick darkness, we would go blind in an instant at best. We would be destroyed at worst, completely consumed by the glory of God. And so until that day when we receive the resurrected bodies and we're fitted for life in eternity, the best we can catch are glimpses and flashes of the glory of God. But on that day, the pure in heart will see him face to face with no filters, no mists, no veils. What happens to Moses when he goes up on the mountain, when he ascends into God's presence in that thick darkness? What does he see? What does he experience? Does he see darkness? Close-up views of flashes of lightning? 
the glow of a fire? No. Moses sees the mystery of the God-man. The radiance and the brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he sees on the sacred mountain. The mystery that was kept hidden for ages. Moses caught a glimpse of that. The mystery that has been revealed for your sake in Jesus Christ. Moses saw that on the mountain. He stood in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and experienced transformation. That's why when he would come down from the mountain, his face would be radiant and glowing because he had been in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a temporal glory fading day by day, but terrifying to the people nonetheless because he came down reflecting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to keep them from running afraid, running away, he would cover his face with a veil. Now, sometimes we think of stories like Moses going up on the mountain and think, oh, that would have been wonderful. I would have been content to be at the foot of the mountain and watching one of you go up. But to go up would have been amazing, is what many people say. And we forget that by grace through faith, we have actually experienced something truer and better than Moses ever did. Because we have experienced the fullness and the reality of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might ask in a story like this, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with me? And the answer is everything. The Apostle Paul picks up the thread of this story for us and he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that this has given us a true and great hope. And because we have this hope, we are very bold. We have confidence like Moses never had. We're not like him who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at what was fading away. Because when one turns to the Lord, there are no more veils. There are no more filters. They are removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And freedom here doesn't mean liberty to do anything and everything you want. Freedom here means boldness and confidence to draw near to God, to go into that thick darkness, to encounter the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we all with unveiled face contemplating the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's not just Moses who goes up into the thick darkness and stands in the glorious light of Christ and is changed. But we also go through the thick darkness and stand in the glorious light of Christ and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is why it's important for us to make the ascent, to keep striving for the upward call of the heavenly life 
to keep moving up and away from the things of the earth and fixing our minds on things that are above. Unlike Moses, we have not come to a physical mountain that may be touched. We've not come to a mountain ablaze with fire, covered in darkness and gloom, a tempest and storm with the sound of trumpets and a voice that causes people to tremble with terror. We have come to a spiritual and mystical mountain, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You have come to God. You have come to the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to his priceless blood sprinkled on the door frames of your hearts, holy blood that proclaims the grace and the glory of God, the forgiveness and the freedom from sins. In other words, we have come to something truer and better than Moses and Israel could have ever asked or imagined. And we've come to these things because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true and better mediator, prophet, priest, and king for the people of God. We've come to the one who has come to bring us all the way home. So see to it that you do not refuse Christ who speaks to you, for if they did not escape when they refused Moses, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Jesus, who warns us from heaven. Well, earlier I mentioned a story of Blaise Pascal. One night when he was 31 years old, Pascal made his greatest discovery it was the most important discovery of his life. And this is what it was. Fire. This is the note he wrote to describe what he experienced in the thick darkness of that night. He wrote in a note that he wore inside his jacket for the next eight years of his life. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, feast of St. Clement, Pope and martyr, and other martyrs. From about half past ten at night until about half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude. Certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and the one that you sent. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. And that was the, the greatest discovery of his life. 
And over the course of the next eight years, he wrote perhaps his most famous work, an incompleted work called Ponces, the thoughts of a man who had encountered God in the darkness of the night. My hope and prayer is that in the course of your life, you will have an encounter or an experience like this that will draw your soul to ascend more and more up into the thick darkness of who God is, where true life and light dwells. I know beyond a doubt that all of you want to go to heaven. But I wonder how many of you want to see God. How many of you really and truly want to see God? And I ask that because I wonder if we can see that desire in your life now. What are you doing to show that you want to see God? How are you living? What are you separating yourselves from? What habits are you cultivating? How are you showing with your life that you want to ascend the mountain of the Lord to enter into the thick darkness, to commune with God, just to be in his presence, to be where he is. If you think you're showing it by occasional church attendance, you're not showing it very well. If you think you're showing it by occasional Bible reading or prayer, you're not showing it very well. If you think you show it by devoting yourselves to politics, religion, and sports, you're not showing it very well. You're showing a different set of desires, a different kind of ambition. If you think you're showing it by trying to keep up with everyone because of the fear of missing out, you want to have the latest quotes and the newest trends and have all of that in your head, you're not showing it very well. I know you want to go to heaven, but do you want to be with the one who dwells in heaven? Do you want to see the face of the one who created heaven and earth and everything in them? Do you want to see the one who carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself? Not to leave you at the foot of a mountain, but to bring you up into his presence. So I want to urge you, don't just marvel at what Moses experienced. Don't just think, well, that's for Jesus or some saint somewhere, maybe one of your pastors. Lay hold of this calling on your life. Show by your life, show by your deeds, show by your actions what you truly desire, what you truly hunger and thirst for. Show by your repentance of sin and obedience to God's word that you want to see the face of Jesus Christ. Don't imagine that it's going to happen from one day to the next. It will take a lifetime. As we've already seen, God works slowly and patiently with his people. Last night, when the darkness came and the storm rolled in, at least in our corner of the world, there was thunder and lightning and rain. And I ascended the stairs of my house to go up to my office in the upper room. The lights were out and I could see out the window and gaze into the darkness and only see the flashes of lightning on occasion and hear the rumble of the thunder. 
I thought this would be a great time to pray. Like Moses, I'm going to pray in the thick darkness. And I prayed, hoping and praying something would happen. And you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. And I wasn't disappointed at all because I thought this is a step in the right direction. This is one more step up the mountain, one more rung on the ladder, ascending to the glory of God. And perhaps, perhaps in 30 years, when I'm 80 years old, perhaps then when I'm 80, perhaps then I will see what Moses saw. But I have a ways to go. There's a lot of time left. What am I going to do with that time? What are you going to do with the time that God has given you? Gregory of Nyssa was right when he said, The true knowledge of God is a mountain, steep indeed and difficult to climb. The majority of people scarcely reach its base. And some who reach the foot of the mountain never ascend into the thick darkness. But if one were like Moses... He would ascend higher and hear the sound of the trumpets, which become louder as one advances, as one ascends into the thick darkness of the light of God. My hope and prayer for you is that the trumpets of God, the flashes of lightning, will be louder and brighter every step of your journey, every step of your ascent into the presence of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.